Let's pray, and then we will open the word together. Risen Jesus, you are king. As king, you have all power. And as king, you are benevolent, Lord, more benevolent than any merely earthly ruler has ever been. We thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have showered upon us as king. We thank you for your just and righteous rule over your world. We thank you, Jesus, that you are coming back to gather your people home. What a hope and what a joy, Lord God. And now as we open your word, we pray your kingship over it. We pray that you would rule in our hearts and minds as we listen, that we would listen well and bring you glory. And Lord, that you would bring great benefit to us in this time that we get to share uh, in this portion of Jeremiah together. We pray your blessing and your spirit's rich presence in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a tumultuous 23 years in the southern kingdom of Judah. On the heels of King Josiah's death in 609 B.C., no less than four of his descendants would rule over Judah in the span of only 23 years. And this would happen amidst the turbulent contest that was raging between Egypt and Babylon for dominance in the region. These 23 years that followed Josiah's reign would finally culminate with that catastrophic event that was Judah's final defeat at the hands of Babylon and the exile of God's people. But here's a little timeline, just very briefly, of what happened in Judah during those 23 years prior to the exile. So King Josiah dies in 609. He is succeeded on the throne by his 23-year-old son, Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz is described in 2 Kings 23.32 as a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. And Jehoahaz only lasted three months on the throne before the pharaoh of Egypt, who didn't care for Jehoahaz, captured him and eventually exiled him to the land of Egypt. That was the end of Jehoahaz. Succeeding Jehoahaz was his older brother, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was put on the throne of Judah by that same pharaoh of Egypt who had deposed Jehoahaz. So this meant that this new king, Jehoiakim, was a puppet king. A puppet ruler under the thumb of a greater foreign power. Well, Jehoiakim would reign for about 11 years. My Unger's Bible Dictionary describes Jehoiakim as a vicious and irreligious man. And of course, he's probably most remembered for his infamous act of tearing up Jeremiah's written prophecies and throwing them into the fire. Well, after Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, there'll be a test on this later. 
Jehoiachin, his son, ascended the throne of Judah. Now, 2 Chronicles 36.9 tells us that Jehoiachin also did evil in the sight of the Lord, and Jehoiachin only lasted three months on the throne. When Babylon came in, invading, Jehoiachin surrendered, and he, along with the leading figures of Judah at the time, were all taken captive. Jehoiachin would live imprisoned under Babylon for the next 36 years. And then the final Old Testament king of Judah, who came after Jehoiachin, was his uncle Zedekiah. Zedekiah would reign for about nine years, at which point, at the end of those nine years, Judah was overtaken by Babylon. 2 Kings 24.19 says that Zedekiah also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In Ezekiel 21.25, Zedekiah is called a profane, wicked one. And in his dealings, if we read the text, in his dealings with both the prophet Jeremiah and also with the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, we can see that Zedekiah was a sort of sketchy character. Eventually, Zedekiah was captured by Babylon. His sons were killed before his eyes, and he himself was blinded by those who had captured him. He ended up dying in Babylon. It was a tumultuous 23 years in the southern kingdom of Judah, and it's this tumultuous 23 years with its succession of four bad kings that is under the spotlight in Jeremiah chapter 20, right through the initial verses of Jeremiah 23. This chunk of Jeremiah contains a series of prophecies that were directed at those four wicked descendants of Josiah. Our focus on this first Sunday of Advent is the last little section of that longer part of Jeremiah. This morning we want to focus our attention only on the first eight verses of Jeremiah 23. I hope you have a Bible in front of you. Watch what happens here. God begins in verse 1 with a statement of woe. A statement of woe that is directed at the shepherds of Judah. And here that word shepherds in the text refers primarily to those kings who had been reigning in Judah, but perhaps also the the word shepherds refers to priests and, at the time, the so-called prophets who were living in the land. These leaders together had been wicked. They'd been looking out for their own interests above those of the people that they were supposed to be leading. According to verse 2, these kings and priests and prophets had scattered the people. That's the word that's used there, scattered the people, and they had driven the people away, and they had not attended to the people. Well, God says at the close of verse 2, they didn't attend to the people. Now he would personally attend to their wickedness. They would be punished. And then in verses 3 and 4, we have, notice, three separate I will statements from God. 
I will gather the remnant of my flock. I will bring them back to their fold. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. As Conrad Mbewe says here, God is essentially telling the leaders of Israel that if they have failed to do the work he has asked them to do, he will do it himself. God takes leadership over God's people very seriously. Now again, friends, all these words from God are coming just prior to the moment of Judah's defeat at the hands of Babylon and their exile into the land of Babylon. God is already looking ahead here in verses 3 and 4 to the time after the exile is over. This would be a time, said God, when there would be a fresh beginning for his people. And God ramps up his description of the freshness of this post-exile time by using, at the end of verse 3, by using two terms that hearken back to the creation moment in the book of Genesis. God says that when the people would come back to their land after the exile, they would be fruitful and multiply. The language of being fruitful and multiplying comes straight from Genesis 1.22, Genesis 1.28, when God had commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. So the idea here in Jeremiah 23.3 is the time following the exile would be like a new creation moment, like a reset. When the people returned to their land from Babylon, The season of the evil shepherds, the season of the evil kings over Judah and over Israel would be a distant memory, and God's creation purpose for God's world would re-engage, be fruitful, and multiply. Well, all this leads, leads us to what is technically our preaching text this morning, which is verses 5 and 6 that Jennifer read for us earlier. Verse 5 begins... Notice, with a future-oriented phrase. Behold, the days are coming. So with this phrase, God now wants his people to look out toward the future. He wants them to look away from their current moment, just in the years prior to the exile, when evil Jehoiachin is ruling over them. He wants them to look away from that, out into the future. Behold, the day is coming, declares Yahweh when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Now, what's amazing about this is that right at the end of the last chapter, Jeremiah 22, God pronounced prophetically on King Jehoiachin that Jehoiachin in David's lineage would have no children. And thus, he'd have no offspring on David's throne. And now here at 23.5, God says that he would raise up a righteous branch for David, which means that the branch would come in the lineage of David. So that the righteous branch could not be a direct descendant of Jehoiachin, because Jehoiachin was going to be childless. The branch would have to come from another part of David's family tree. But just as God had given barren Sarah 
a child against all odds. So in the future, God would give a descendant of David the branch against the odds. God would give this future king in the line of David because God had promised David, in 2 Samuel 7 he had promised David, that David's throne would be established for how long? Forever. And God was going to keep that promise. But just notice here the basic fact Although not a direct descendant of Jehoiachin, the coming branch would still be connected organically back to David. David was the original root. He was the original stem. Which is to say, friends, that the branch would have human ancestry. The branch, or the sprout that would shoot up from the dead stump, of David's kingly line, would be righteous. That is, this branch from David would shine in vivid contrast to the unrighteousness of those kings in Judah who had failed so miserably and had sinned. Verse 5 says that the branch would reign as king and deal wisely, that he would execute justice and righteousness in the land. Notice that the branch in verse 5 is both righteous himself, the righteous branch, and he also exercises a righteous rule. Just two chapters back in Jeremiah 21.12, God promised that he would bring his fiery, burning wrath on the kings of Judah if they did not execute justice and if they did not deliver oppressed people in the land. And just one chapter back in Jeremiah 22, verse 3 to 5, God promised that David's house would become a desolation if the kings in that house failed to do justice and righteousness. God says here in Jeremiah 23.5 that what was he going to do? He was going to personally raise up a king who would do it. This king who God would provide would deal wisely. He would execute justice and righteousness in the land. Let's go to verse 6. In the days of this branch king from the line of David, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Now, interestingly enough, over in Psalm 2, verse 8, it's not simply Israel and Judah who are delivered and who dwell securely under this coming king. It's the whole world. It's the nations who are given to this king as an inheritance. It's the ends of the earth that are given to this king as his possession. So things, even in the Old Testament, expand. Revelation develops. This king would have the whole world as his possession. But back to the verse. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. What's his name? The Lord is our righteousness. Now, one thing we need to pay attention to here in this passage is that the Lord is doing the talking. So it's the Lord who says here 
and this is the name by which the branch man will be called. It's the Lord who says that. In other words, here, God names this descendant of David who will come, and the fact that God names him is very significant because three of the four evil kings who we mentioned at the beginning today had been given their throne names by the more powerful earthly rulers who ruled over them. Rulers from Babylon and from Egypt. So those Judean kings had been puppets of those more powerful earthly kings. They had been named, given their names by those more powerful kings. And that's what you did in the ancient Near East. When you had power over someone, you named them. These kings were given their names by the kings of Babylon and Egypt. But now, the branch of David who would come, this new righteous king, From Yahweh, he is named by Yahweh himself because this king would be the true representative of Yahweh himself. This new king has the name of Yahweh on him, in fact. Notice that. His name is Yahweh, translated in our English Bibles as the Lord in all caps. Yahweh is our righteousness. Yahweh names the new king, Yahweh is our righteousness. Now an interesting thing here is this. That fourth king after Josiah, who we talked about earlier, the man Zedekiah, his name means the Lord is righteousness. The problem with Zedekiah was that He did not live in honor of that name. As we said, Zedekiah, according to 2 Kings 24.19, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Zedekiah did not exude God's righteousness. He didn't live up to his name. And so the idea here in Jeremiah 23.6 is this, that the branch man who was to come, this this new Davidic ruler in the future who was named by God, he would rightfully and justifiably take the name, the Lord is our righteousness. He is the one who would honor that name and live up to the fullness of that name. This coming king would live out that name, in fact. He would execute the justice and the righteousness and the deliverance, the salvation for the people that Zedekiah failed to execute. This king would be no paltry Zedekiah. The new king is named by Yahweh with Yahweh's name. The king's name is Yahweh is our righteousness. This king, notice, would be so closely associated with Yahweh, that he could rightfully take Yahweh's very name on him. In Isaiah 9, this same king is prophesied there, and there he's called Mighty God. This king would not just be a man, He would come from human ancestry, yes, but he would not just be a man. He would be God also. God 
in the flesh. The God-man. Yahweh in the flesh. Yahweh to the rescue. The Savior King of human ancestry, but also divine. Well, in our passage, in verses 7 and 8, there is a breathtaking statement about this new king's activity. There is a breathtaking statement here about a new exodus. About how in the future, God's people would undergo a deliverance, hallelujah, from captivity that would be so great that it would make the first exodus out of Egypt pale in comparison. Listen to these verses. God says, therefore, that is, because of this branch king that God would raise up, therefore, behold, the days are coming, future. The days are coming, declares Yahweh, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That is, the people would no longer consider the first exodus from Egypt as the defining act of deliverance for God's people. But, as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. The idea is, friends, the new exodus that would happen for God's people would be even more of a defining moment, even more memorable and surpassing than the first exodus. And although this prophecy in verses 7 and 8 had an immediate fulfillment, when the exiled people returned to their land from Babylon by the decree of Persia, the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy is in the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the prophesied branch king of this passage. Listen. In the original Greek text of Luke 9.31, we are told that what Jesus would accomplish in Jerusalem, so in Jerusalem where he would be crucified, what he would accomplish in Jerusalem would be an exodus. The way the word is translated in many of our English Bibles is with the word departure. But the word in Greek in Luke 9.31 is the word exodos, exodus. Jesus by his death, listen, Jesus by his death would lead an exodus. A release of people from their captivity. Freedom for people who were enslaved. Enslaved to what? Enslaved to sin, to the devil, and to death. It's Jesus Christ who ultimately fulfills Jeremiah 23, 7 and 8, and it's Jesus who ultimately fulfills Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Friends, Jesus is the branch who leads the new exodus in Isaiah 11.1, 1, the word for branch, it's very interesting in Isaiah 11.1, 1, the word for branch is the Hebrew word netzer. And Jesus comes from netzeret, Nazareth. So that the branch man, whom the prophets prophesied, hails from the branch city. 
from Nazareth, from Nazareth. And Jesus is the righteous branch, isn't he? In accordance with Jeremiah 23, 5. In 1 John 2, 1, Jesus there is called Jesus Christ the righteous. And as the prophecy of Jeremiah 23, 5 says that the righteous branch would come from David's line and reign as king, Jesus again is the fulfillment. When the angel Gabriel showed up and declared to Mary that she would conceive and bear a child named Jesus, Gabriel described to Mary in that moment some of the details concerning this child that she would conceive. Gabriel said in Luke 1.32-33, The child, Mary, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God, listen, will give to him the throne of his father, David, in fulfillment of Jeremiah 23.5, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Jeremiah 23.5 said that the coming king would reign as king. And said Gabriel to Mary, of his kingdom there will be no end in keeping with 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's Jesus, the coming of whom we celebrate in this Advent season, who fulfills the prophecy of Jeremiah, which had been given more than 600 years earlier. It's King Jesus who comes announcing his program, of justice and righteousness, in keeping with Jeremiah 23.5. And where does Jesus announce that program? He announces it in Branch Town, Nazareth, Nazareth. Jesus opens the scroll in the Branch Town synagogue, and he proclaims his program of justice and righteousness. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, Justice and righteousness. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Justice and righteousness. And recovering of sight to the blind. Justice and righteousness. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Justice and righteousness. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Friends, this is the king that we have all been waiting for. This is the one to whom the nations are given. This is Jesus of human ancestry, fully human, and also fully divine. As Paul describes Jesus in Romans 1.3, Jesus is descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power. And Jesus is the Lord our righteousness. In fulfillment of Jeremiah 23.6, he is the Lord, our, he's talking to you right now, that's you and me, the Lord, our righteousness. Isaiah 53.11 calls him the righteous one who makes many to be accounted righteous. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus became to us righteousness. Jesus is the Lord our righteousness. 
the burning question for you and the burning question for me in both life and in death is the question, how will we as corrupted, sinful, rebellious, wayward, failing creatures. How will we be counted as righteous before the perfect, holy, blazingly righteous God who made us and to whom each of us is accountable? How will we fulfill every one of his law's demands, which we must do if he is to accept us? Will we be counted righteous before him through our own efforts at keeping his law? Will it be through our actions? A little more of that, maybe a little less of this. At the end of the day, will God look at us, look on what we've done, look on what we've not done, look on what we've said and what we've not said, what we've thought and what we've not thought? Will he look on all of that and say, ah, well, you know, you're basically good enough. You basically worked hard enough to conform to my standard. Welcome to heaven. The New Testament answer is, and I want you to hear this with all your might, the New Testament answer is, nothing of the sort will ever happen. Do you hear me today? Nothing of the sort is ever going to happen. No, what must happen in your life, and what must happen in my life, is that each of us must come to own, to own completely and utterly own the truth of Isaiah 64, 6, which is that all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It doesn't matter who you are. All your righteous deeds are as a polluted garment. You must humbly and soberly come to believe that in the depth of your bones about yourself. Do you believe it? Do you know it? All your so-called righteous deeds before God are like a polluted garment. Nothing in you, nothing in me, and I mean nothing, merits God's acceptance of us into his heaven. The righteousness we need in order for God to accept us is what the old theologians used to call an alien, I don't think about Mars, it's a different meaning of the word alien. They used to call it an alien righteousness. That is, a righteousness that is not our own. And listen, I want you to listen to this juicy, glorious, happy, victorious truth. You ready? The truth of the gospel, listen, is that what God requires, which is for us to appear faultlessly righteous as we stand before him, what God requires 
God provides for us as a gift. And he provides it where? In his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is the Lord, our righteousness, who was prophesied in Jeremiah 23.6. Oh, happy truth. Oh, happy truth. When by faith we are united to the crucified, risen, and soon coming Jesus Christ, his righteousness comes to us as a gift. We are clothed with his righteousness, covered with the robe of righteousness, to quote Isaiah 61.10. And this is a righteousness that is not our own, but a righteousness God gifts to us that so clothes us that now God looks on us and says, as he looks on us, he says, you are righteous on account of my son, Jesus. Here's what happens, friends. Our sin is laid on Christ at the cross. And his righteousness is laid on us. Did you get that? Your sin is laid on Jesus Christ at the cross and his righteousness is laid on you. As Brian Vickers puts it so well, God counts our sin to Christ and counts his righteousness to us. How unfair. This is the gospel. Our sin goes to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.9 speaks of two basic kinds of righteousness, one of which is deathly and the other life-giving. He talks about how he wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Notice that. Not having a righteousness of my own. That comes from the law. So there's the first kind of unhelpful, deathly righteousness. The righteousness of one's own that comes from the law. Rather, Paul says, the life-giving righteousness he needs, as he says here, is a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from where? From God that depends on faith. This second kind of righteousness in Philippians 3.9 is the kind of righteousness that I need as I stand in life and as I am lowered into my grave, as I go to God who made me. This is the kind of righteousness that I need and this is the kind of righteousness that you need also. And friend, it's only through union with Jesus Christ by faith that we have this righteousness that is Christ's righteousness, the Lord our righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says that in him, in him, it's about union, that phrase, in him, in Jesus, we become the righteousness of God. In Romans 1.22, Paul speaks of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We need the righteousness of this Davidic branch king who is also God himself. Are you with me today? Well, friends, it's now the Christmas season. It's now the gift-giving season. 
I want you to listen. The only gift that you really need this season, the only gift. I talked last week about the Publisac, throw it out. The only gift that you really need this season and every season of your entire life, if you don't already have it, is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is your crying need. Maybe you're a person here today who's been around the church for decades. But yet you've somehow bought into the common lie that your goodness, your deeds, your efforts will make you right with God. You've bought into that lie. You've bought into the false notion that in the end, God will weigh your life on the balance and although... You're not perfect. In the end, he'll see your goodness and accept you into his heaven based on that. I stand here this morning on the authority of the New Testament, and I say to you, stop believing that dangerous and insidious lie. Instead, I encourage you to fall on your face in utter dependence and cry out to the God who made you for his mercy to you, a sinner, and confess to him your need of Jesus Christ, your need of Jesus' forgiving blood and your need of Jesus' perfect righteousness. God is good. God will favorably look on your broken and contrite heart. God will be glorified by your desperate dependence on the person and work of his son, the righteous branch king, Jesus. May Jesus Christ be exalted in our hearts, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, this text confronts us with the gospel. The gospel is a fragrance of life to some and a fragrance of death to others. Father, this morning your spirit is at work here in this place. And I pray, Lord, for somebody who perhaps has been in the church for a long time, perhaps even serving, um, fellowshipping, doing the things that we do in the life of the church. But they, they, there's no life, Lord. There, there's no uh, regeneration by your Holy Spirit. They haven't been born again. I pray, Lord God, by your power that you would do that right now. Maybe you've already done it through your word or through something else this morning. Lord, uh, the Spirit blows where he will, and we leave that up to your pleasure. But I pray, Lord, that this word would ring in our hearts and minds this week if we are believers, if there are others around us who need to know that they need a righteousness that is not their own, Lord God, may we be bold enough and empowered by your spirit to speak to them in a Christ-like tone and help them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And now may God's grace and mercy follow you wherever you go and whatever you do. May Jesus' teachings and redeeming love give you a holy, disciplined life.
And may the Holy Spirit's presence give you joy in serving others and being a light in this world's darkness. Go now in peace.